Welcome to this episode of Money Moves, Matt here. On today's episode, I will discuss socially responsible and sustainable investing, a topic that may seem like a paradox to some. I'll sit down with Jason Howell, author, adjunct professor at George Mason University and owner of the Jason Howell Company, a wealth management firm that aims to use sustainable, responsible, and impact investing to develop family leaders into patriarchs, matriarchs, and stakeholders of their local communities. A message that resonates with me, but also resonates with the message and mission behind Gen Z for Financial Literacy. And that's what makes this conversation truly special. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed recording. Jason Howell. Uh, I do a number of things. When people ask me just sort of on the street, I'll just say I'm in finance. And they ask a follow-up question, then I'll be happy to tell them that I run a wealth management firm. I teach personal finance over at George Mason University, which is my alma mater. Um, I also teach at American University. Started doing my adjunct work there. I've written a book called Joy of Financial Planning. And I actually wrote that for this generation's new adults, because Mm -hmm. what I see is that you know, it's really important to work hard. Everybody knows that. Your grandparents worked hard and that would be enough. But these days you need to have a really good grasp on personal finance to be able to succeed in addition to working hard. The challenges are different in the 2020s than they were in say the you know, 1970s. And so I wanted to get something together so people can get an idea for that. But for me, what I'm most interested in and what I've always been interested in is understanding how money works and it's, it's been a constant study for me. I'm a teacher, but I'm also a student. That's powerful. I love when I hear that. I love when people who are accomplished and, um, and very knowledgeable still say they're students. Um, that always resonates with me. That's what I strive to be. Yep. As for that, the right. book you wrote, right. how did you feel like that book cultivated all your, all your knowledge about the new era of financial financials in general, because things like Medicare and Social Security are evidently running out as we yeah. approach the 2030s, I would say. And people who are 18, 19, 20 now really can't just rely on, on those benefits anymore. Well, they can and they can't. And so they can rely on them as much as even Gen X or maybe not as much as the boomers. Boomers are really fortunate. Um, But, you know, one of the things that I found is when I started looking into the data on, on things like, for example, Social Security, it's not running out in the way that it's presented it's the, the extra that's there is running out and that's scheduled 2033 or four, depending on, you know, what data comes out, but mm-hmm. we're actually paying payroll tax all the time. When I say we, I mean the working community, we're all paying payroll tax in addition to federal tax and depending on your state, state income tax. And that money is covering a large portion of the people who are already retired and receiving benefits. In fact, we know what the portion is because we're hearing in 2032, 33, 34, that the system is going to be bankrupt. But what that actually means is there's no extra. So only the money that's coming in from current workers is going to pay benefits out. And they're saying if nothing happens, Mm. 
75% of the benefit will still be paid out. So what that tells you by default is that we're covering the cost of paying the benefits up to 75% of what's been promised. We've had all this extra for decades and we're burning through the extra. And so how, who's the they that tells me whether it's 2032, 33, 34? It's the old age and uh, disability income trustees. They put a report out every year, OASDI, every year, and they update exactly not only what the numbers are in the year it's going to run out, mm-hmm. but recommendations on what to do. And so we hear all this negativity about it going away, but we never really talk about, well, what are the solutions that are there as if they're so mysterious? But they come in the report every year, signed off by the Secretary of the Treasury, by all the important people you'd expect. And so uh, challenge your politicians to say, well, what's in the report? I bet. But what about more of like, what can people do for them to maintain that power of like, sure, it's cool to rely on the government stress-free, the checks coming when I retire, but with with those with those numbers that thin margin i don't think a lot of people feel comfortable buying a house retiring i think i just saw a tiktok the other day it was asking people on the street would you ever feel comfortable buying a house 18 19 20 year olds and most said no and that's yeah. shocking yeah so where yeah, do i mean you I, think that's, that's they a great can point. regain that power let's let's um let's dispel ourselves from the word retirement and, and sort of look at another kind of set of words, maybe financial independence. And we've right. learned from our, you know, most admired Taylor Swift's and the Jay-Z's and Ed Sheeran's and the like, that you, you don't need to wait until you're 65 to have some level of financial independence. We know that, you know, the challenge right. is that we have, we have a different economy than our, say our grandparents had, but we've never had as much opportunity as we do now to create income seemingly out of thin air. And a big reason for that is we have access to the entire public via the internet. And we not only have the access because we have that access since 19, you know, 99, 2000, but we have Mm -hmm. software that's layered on top of it for either free like TikTok or relatively inexpensive, like some of the other tools where we can actually monetize our content and our knowledge. And so I agree with you, Matthew, we should not be thinking about those government programs. They were designed for people who were disadvantaged and, and who were already poor. And they've actually succeeded. They have reduced poverty within old age um, drastically since they were put in place. But for most people who are going to listen to this podcast, they're not thinking about poverty. They're thinking about succeeding and winning and, and trying to take advantage of the system that we do have. And I mean that in a positive way. We're going to have good capitalism, then we should leverage that for our benefit. And that means getting skills. Um, and that means, you know, doing good work. And then that means reinvesting the extra. So here's my, my formula. And unfortunately, it's not a three-step formula. It's a four-step formula, which is kind of odd. Uh. But my, my formula is this, um, especially for the people who are younger that are listening to this. The first thing you work for is an education. You work for an education. After you work for an education, you work for people. That's step two. Step three is after you work for an education and work for people, then people work for you. Either that's because you started a business and you hired someone or because you got promoted to supervisor. 
And when you get promoted or you hire someone, you end up having extra money because you're leveraging the effort of another human being. That extra money is money that can work for you. So first you work for an education to be paid a premium. Otherwise you won't be paid very well at all. Look at our minimum wages. Then right. you work for people, then people work for you, then money works for you. And the more money that works for you is the less that you have to work. And you have all the time in the world to kind of keep going in that loop. So like I mentioned, I'm still a student. There's so many things yet for me to learn. I know that the more I learn is the more value I can take to the market. The more value I take to the market is the more that I'll be rewarded. Maybe right. it's the more people I can hire. And with that extra leverage, I can get that money to work on my behalf. That's powerful. That's powerful. Because a lot of people want that. A lot of people want that end goal, especially my age, ambitious, really want to eventually have their own business, have all the time in the world, but also be really well accomplished and feel fulfilled in their life. Um, and putting it like that and understanding the process is really important. But I wanted to touch a bit more on that step four. Um, sure. How do you think we as meaning Gen Z can shape their investing strategies to have money properly work for them? Start really basic. There are more opportunities in the 2020s to invest than there seemingly were available, say to your parents when they were your age. Um, it's much cheaper and there's more access. It's two things. So with you know, less expense, that means more of your money is going towards the investment. And with more access, it means you're getting opportunities to participate in better, um, better investments that are more rewarding and that's how they're better, okay? So, um, so this is what you do, you get really basic. Number one, generate an income. If you're not generating an income, then there's nothing, right? If you're just yeah. spending student loan money um, and or the money that your parents are giving you, um, then there's just nothing to talk about. So generate an income. After you generate an income, then look at what you're doing with your spending and say, I need to spend less than the income I generate. So get to a point where you have a hundred bucks that you never spend, three figures. Get to the point where you have four figures, a thousand bucks that you never spend and just get used to having money that you don't spend. That takes time. For some people, they didn't get raised in an environment where having money was even a possibility because they had to really meet their needs right away. But for others, they did come from that environment and then maybe that affected them in a reverse way where it seemed like money was infinite. It's not. Um, and so getting your own habit around actually retaining resources, that's you know an important mental step, behavioral step, habit. And as you do that, then you can repurpose those dollars into investments. Those could be investments into your own business. Those could be investments into the stock market, into the bond market. And one day as you qualify into alternative markets that really give you an opportunity to do what I know you wanna do. You wanna 10X, you wanna like 20X <laughs> your stuff. You can get there, but you've gotta have something to X. And you've got to have an ability to lose that money because the higher return is the higher risk. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to get really good at generating an income. And when you get really good at generating an income, get a habit of saving some of it. And when those two habits merge together, you have everything in front of you. So I'll put it to you this way. 
I mentioned Taylor Swift, Ed Sheeran, Jay-Z. If you took all of their money away, all of it, if you took their talent away too, all of it, they'd still be rich. Why? Because they have an income stream from their royalties forever, Hmm. forever. And so that's the opportunity. The opportunity isn't about saving a bunch of money. That was a something that was sold to you by my financial industry since the 1980s that you need Mm -hmm. to save a bunch of money and then live off of it for 30 years and you'll be fine. But the truth is it's always been about income. It was about income before there were pensions that you worked and worked and worked and then you died. And then there was pensions. You worked and worked and worked and then you got rewarded with a check for the rest of your life from this company. If they didn't go bankrupt, then you died. And then it became I know, let's set aside some of your money for 30 years and then you'll have a big chunk and then you can spend some of that slowly. And when I do that with my clients, when they're spending it slowly, do you know they want a regular amount? Of course they do. So I'll send them a check, like a $1,500 check every two weeks out of their own money. It's income. It's not, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter the fact that it, well, yeah, it matters that it's going to last long enough before they die because I've set it up and I've done their plan. But to them, it's still income. And so for you, for Gen Z, it's really about generating an income. If you can keep your health and you can keep income coming, then you'll never run out of money. That's the goal. (laughs) So what about the aspect of social investing? Because it's something you talk about a lot, but I feel like the central aspect of finances is simply to have enough money. But how do some people balance that with the social aspect? What kind of metrics can they use? Where can they find information about that? Well, let me let me balance the language too. Sustainable investing is is really the umbrella language around it, and so it's a sustainable, mm-hmm. responsible investing. And you know, when you step all the way back, nothing happens unless it's sustainable. Businesses don't survive unless they are sustainable. This is not at all a new concept. I just told you, you know, you got to have the income and you got to spend less than the income. That's sustainability. Obviously, if you spend more than you make, then that's unsustainable. And so the idea conceptually of saying that you want to either make investments or support companies that are sustainable for the benefit of the planet, the community, um, you know, people who are not doing as well, that's just sort of life-giving. It's, it's really not anti anything. Um, so that's sort of the first point. The second point is if you want to do that, then you need to highlight factors that are important to you. And the factors come from environmental, social, or governance factors. And you can decide within those broad factors, what's important to you. Now, institutional wealth is going heavy and hard around climate makes sense. There's no sustainability if there's no planet. So like it's logical Um, Mm -hmm. and whether it's climate and their second biggest category is actually international conflict. There's no sustainability if we're going to war. Like there are parts of the world right now and we know them that are really not enjoying what seems to be a sustainable life because they're at war. And so these are the two biggest areas that institutions are investing in. And it's one that we can look to as well. But you don't have to lose money to invest sustainably. 
That's an option. That's actually called impact investing, where you're saying, I'm willing to take a lower return for the benefit of a group that will take advantage of that and, and enjoy that return because I'm doing the investing. Uh, that's impact investing. But sustainable investing is exactly what it means. It's just a higher level of investing that says, I'm looking at performance, but I'm adding some other factors that happen to be important to me as an investor. Got it. So there is an important distinction there. Yeah. But Impact what about, is yeah. entirely different. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a philanthropic attempt, impact investing? Yes. Okay. So what about balancing philanthropy with your finances and maybe balancing impact investing and just flat out donating? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, people want to make an impact. Yeah, they do. And so do I. And, you know, for example, we are members of what's called 1% for the Planet, um, which is an organization founded by the CEO of Patagonia, who just gave away all his mm -hmm. money. Um, and his thinking was that as members of the planet, we should like, you know, pay our rent, you know, to the planet. You know, we, we live here, so we should mm -hmm. pay rent just like we pay rent for our homes or what have you. And so in the same way, we as a firm believed in that mission and we donate 1% of our revenue. Uh, to a local organization that helps with, you know, basically food access and how that helps environmentally is food doesn't get wasted. That's been like on a truck and got late to a grocery store and they don't throw a bunch of vegetables in a landfill, which creates methane gas that ruins the ozone. And so they're able to purpose that food and make sure it's actually utilized and eaten. So you've got an environmental aspect to it. We've also got a social aspect to it because people who are hungry have more food access because of what we're doing. And so the bigger we get, we feel really well. We feel like mm -hmm. we're going to be doing great things because we're contributing for that philanthropic purpose. Okay, that's kind of nice. What about the other 99% of our revenue? Well, the other 99% of our revenue really changed when in 2020, we decided to go all in on sustainable investing. I was sitting on a couch you know, thinking about the George Floyd situation on top of the pandemic situation and wondering what could I do with my firm, Jason Howell Company. And then I thought, you know, most of my peers don't believe in sustainable investing and I've kind of like not paid a lot of attention. So let me actually answer those cold emails that come to me. Let me sit on a webinar. Let me talk to people who are on podcasts. And here's what I learned. I learned that sustainable investing goes as far back as the Quakers. When the Quakers decided to get really? out of the slave trade. Yeah. And they mm. said, that's not our thing. That's not a sustainable way to run a business. And so they got out of it. And, and then iteratively, it's come out in the United States since the 1970s. Um, and it's been around in earnest since the great financial crisis because people, institutions, really decided that they needed to invest with an eye towards not only environmental causes, not only conflict risk, but also generalized risk management, which is the G, governance. It was governance that almost killed the economy in 2008. And that kind of risk is always looked at by professional investors. So once again, um, you know, slamming SRI and, and ESG as something that's some weird anomaly or mm -hmm. politicizing it is really useless. It's been around institutional investors are partaking it. Everyone else is just sort of jawboning it. But the more successful you get, the more successful I get, is the more we can purpose money for causes that we believe in. 
And by being able to say, I'm going to you know, have a sustainable investing shop and ask my clients if they were on board for that, I was able to purpose millions of dollars toward the good. Mm -hmm. uh, the good as defined by my clients and my firm, but towards the good. And that's what you and your peers can do. The more successful you are is the more access and opportunity you have to support the good. And you know that people, there are plenty of sort of sort of bad people that get rich and do lots of things. We see right. them frustrated. Um, I think we have an opportunity to also join in the success part and then purpose good things. And my feeling is if more good people are successful, we'll have more opportunities for good on this planet. That's such a perfect way to put it and such a beautiful way to empower people who, who want to do good but are stuck in the cycle of just just hating the rich, but why don't you just become, become that and, 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 and you, you be the change. I really like that. So would you say if you were to add and make it a five-step plan instead of a three-step plan, instead of oh, a four-step plan, would you, you be able to add the social aspect? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I'd be fine with that. <laughs> adding the social <laughs> aspect that broadens it. Right. My, my plan was just for that, you know, that Scrooge McDuck uh, in the middle who was trying to become wealthy. Um, it's the four-step plan. But the expectation is that it's not a Scrooge McDuck, that it's actually a really good person. And so, yeah, their fifth step is going to be going and, and now broadening the base, right? Having an, uh, what do they call it, an abundance mindset and saying, now that I'm mm -hmm. here, now that I'm part of, be it the 20% or the 1%, what can I do to um, ensure that others come behind me? You know, the real, the real value is this. I think most people don't have an idea of what for them is their meaning of life. It seems like such a very big concept and we struggle with that for years and years and years. But from my view, we all have sort of a similar meaning and that's to essentially reduce suffering in the world. Now that may be reduce suffering within your family, it may be a reduced suffering of the friends, it may be a reduced suffering of your peers, your generation, um, or it may literally mean you're gonna try to do something really huge and reduce poverty in certain parts of the country, the planet or the country. Um, it mm -hmm. all depends, but whichever way you do it, whether it's from a local level or a national level or an international level, it's the same. You wanna reduce suffering. So when you have the opportunity to be successful, be it financially or otherwise, you have a bigger opportunity to reduce suffering at the very least, just telling people how you've done it and maybe they can copy you and they can have some hope. Um, and so that's, that's how I see it. You know, the, any success principle that I espouse on the back end always has that sort of, we'll call it the Matthew fifth step, which is uh, go out there and reduce suffering. And so that, with your time on this earth, you didn't just make yourself successful, mm -hmm. but you made some other people better off. Yeah, that makes that, that inspires me, honestly, because a lot of the conversations I have when it comes to finances, when it comes to managing money, if they go on long enough, you eventually get to the meaning of life. You just have to because money essentially powers that it powers your life. So you have yeah. to understand why. And it's a question that everybody deals with if if you're dealing with the subject of money and those two cannot, cannot be separated. And I like that you touch on it because it almost doesn't matter unless, unless we discuss that and set that groundwork. And when we reflect outward, it usually, and, and the meaning is not so internal and not so selfish. 
it usually ends better. It usually ends well. And it usually ends in a positive outcome, a uh, good life, good life for others and a better planet. So thank you. You're welcome. All right. So if that's all we have. Uh, if you just want to maybe share some, some information about anything you have coming up, maybe social media, websites, anything you'd like our audience to check out. Absolutely. Well, if you want to find me, you can easily find me by searching my name, Jason Howell. Uh, I did buy the URL, jasonhowell.com way back in 1999. <laughs> and so it's, it's easy to look me up. I'm easy to find. Um, I, I put lots of stuff out on my LinkedIn page, but of course my webpage is my hub. So I'll just say that jasonhowell.com. My book is Joy of Financial Planning. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, but you know, if one of your listeners would like a copy, then at least let's do at least one free copy and I'll be happy to mail one out to, uh, to him or her. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jason. Yeah, you You're right. honestly so inspired to talk to you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Money Moves with Gen Z for Financial Literacy. We hope you learned something today. If you'd like to work with us, visit our website, genzforfinlit.org slash intern. Again, that's genzforfinlit.org slash I-N-T-E-R-N. You can also follow us on Instagram at genzforfinlit for future updates. We also have a monthly newsletter where we go into depth on everything related to finance and business. You can sign up for it on the website as well. Until next time, it's been Matt and Steven. <laughs>